going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 6. This is verse 8. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask. Jesus says, God knows what you need before you even ask. And this is in a whole passage on him teaching us how to pray. And in fact, the next few verses are the Lord's Prayer, where he teaches us how to pray. God knows what we need before we even ask. So, why do we have to ask? Why doesn't he just take care of us? Why doesn't he just meet my needs uh, instead of making me pray about it? So it's not necessarily my topic this morning, but it is where I want to start this morning is why does God require us to pray? Jesus tells us a little bit. He tells us the very foundational issue or truth right here. He says, your father knows what you need before you ask. We have to ask. God is such a humble gentleman that he will never force himself into our lives, even when he knows we have a need, if we haven't asked him to come in. He will not trespass your free will. He will not trespass your personal autonomy. He allows you to struggle and fight and resist and disobey and complain and get tired. And how many have been there? Until we finally give in and like, God, I can't do this. Please rescue me. He waits for us to ask. That's number one foundational is that he, we do him the honor of asking. He does us the honor of waiting until we ask. Another truth is that God is moved by humility and faith. He is not moved by our needs. The fact that we have a need and the fact that he knows we have a need does not move him. If need moved God, no one would have any needs. There'd be no one starving. There'd be no one sick. There would be nobody poor. There would never be war or injustice of any kind. The fact that we have needs doesn't move God. We have to ask for Him to meet our needs. And we have to ask in real faith because begging doesn't work. Been there, done that? pray panicked, desperate, begging, whining, complaining, even blaming prayers. Yep. God, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you fixing this? This has gone on long enough, God. Uh, The fact that he knows we have a need doesn't move him. And when we beg or blame or whine or get angry even, cuss him out. It doesn't move him. He's moved by humility and faith. I know quite a few people who claim to be atheists because they weren't living for God. Tragedy happens. In that moment, they decide to call on God and blame him at the same time. And because he didn't answer their prayer the way they wanted, well, I just decided there is no God. I know quite a few people like that. And not discounting the tragedy that happened to them, not at all, but God does not respond to begging or whining or wishing. He responds to faith. Humble, receptive, obedient faith. And that is most demonstrated, most clearly demonstrated in Jesus' interaction with the people in his hometown in Nazareth. And here's the Bible story from Mark chapter 6. Jesus goes back to Nazareth and he's there to do the same miracles he does in every other town. Cast out the demons, heal the lepers, raise the dead, heal the sick. But nothing happens in Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. The context of this passage is that when he comes into town, the people's like, well, we know his mother and we know his brothers. He went to school with my kids. Who's he getting off saying he's the Messiah? And they didn't believe. They didn't honor him. So it doesn't say that he didn't do miracles for them because they refused to bow down to him. It says he could do no mighty work there. His power was blocked because they didn't honor him because they didn't believe him. Hello? How many people have had God standing right in front of them and they're 
praying, but they're praying in disobedient unbelief. And God loves them and wants to fix their problem, but the power is blocked. Why do we pray? Well, we pray because God is a gentleman and he waits for us to ask. And he isn't moved by our need, even though he wants to meet the need. Because he loves us, he's not moved by need and he can't be. He has to be moved by real, receptive, humble faith. But there are billions of people in the world who don't have faith. They're not living for God. They're not serving Him. They're following some other religion or you know, they would claim they're Christians, but they're not really at all living for Him. But God still loves them. And He wants them to know Him. And He wants to solve their problems. He wants to heal their sickness and save their marriage and save their kids and save their soul. And the whole Bible is that story of God's desire to win us back. But just a few scriptural examples of how even when nobody is paying any attention to him, when everybody is rebelling and disobeying, he still wants to show mercy and forgiveness and healing and love. Here it is from Jeremiah chapter 5. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and seek if you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. The prophet Jeremiah is telling them, your city is going to be destroyed because of your sin. And God says, run around the city, Jeremiah, and find one righteous man. If you find one person, I'll forgive the whole city. That's God's desperation to show love and forgiveness and healing and graciousness to people who are rebelling against him. But he has to have somebody praying, somebody obeying so that he can come into the situation. Isaiah chapter 59. I saw that there was no man, and I wondered that there was no intercessor, and therefore his own arm brought salvation for him. God is looking for somebody to stand between him and people so that we can pray for mercy, so that he doesn't have to show judgment, so that he can bring mercy and forgiveness and healing. But there has to be somebody interceding. Interceding doesn't just mean Prayer, it means to stand in between and mediate. God, here's my friends. Friends, here's my God. Let's meet. (laughs) That's what intercession means. It includes prayer, but it's certainly not all of that. It's anything you do to bring your friends and family to God and God to your friends and family is interceding. And God says, there isn't anybody, so I'll have to do it myself. So he became a man and he did it. He brought heaven and earth together in Jesus Christ. Isaiah Chapter 63, verse 5, I looked and there was no one to help and I wondered and there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. There has to be somebody, I have to find somebody who can, who can do my work, but I can't find anybody, so I'll do it myself. God can't save us just because we need it. He can't forgive our sin just to save us from hell because he loves us. We use this example a lot, but a judge that lets a criminal go because they're friends is the worst kind of crooked judge. A judge who knows the defendant, knows he's guilty, and lets him go because he likes him, is the worst corrupt judge ever. So the fact that God loves us means he has to be very, very strict that he never, ever lets us off the hook for our sin unless somebody actually paid for it. I have to have a person do it right. Nobody is, so I'll become a man and I'll pay your price. Yeah? He can't just save us because we need it. And he can't just forgive us because he loves us. He has to have a human being. He has to have a man who will obey in humble faith, who will stand in between him and humanity and be the intercessor, the mediator, the arbitrator between it. Because he couldn't find that righteous, faithful man, he became human and he came to us and he's going to show us how to live and who he is and what he wants from us. And Jesus' obedience released the Holy Spirit into the earth when we were faithless, he had faith. When we were disobedient, he obeyed. When we were selfish, he loved. When we were trying to save our lives, he gave up his life. And in his one act of obedience, his one life the whole world gets saved because the Holy Spirit is released. Yeah? And God is still needing people who will obey and pray 
and serve in humble faith to bring his spirit to a faithless and dark world today. The people of this world grope about in darkness, but you live in a bubble of light. Remember that from two months ago? You live in a bubble of light and hope and faith and obedience and power and love and forgiveness. And everywhere you go, you're supposed to be bringing people into that. All right, so what I've said so far is God knows our needs, both his people and the people in the world. He knows our needs, but he can't act just because we need it or just because he loves us. There has to be somebody ask and ask in real faith for him to move into the situation. Ultimately, that's Jesus. But in 2019 in Union County, that's us. Right? A little review for you. Revelation 1, Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 3 says Jesus has the key of David, and he can unlock doors and nobody can shut them. And he can lock doors and nobody can open them. We spent a couple weeks talking about how keys represent authority. Jesus has authority. John 17 says he has authority over all humanity. Matthew 18, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples. And then he tells us that he gives us that authority. In Luke 10, 19, I give you authority over unclean spirits. I give you authority to heal the sick. Mark 16, 19 says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. And then we come to John 20, 21, which we spent quite a little bit of time on last week. John 20, 21, Jesus, this is the evening of the resurrection, the night of what we would call Easter Sunday. Jesus said to them, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So for those of you who were here last week, uh, indulge me a little bit while I review for the people who weren't here. The word send there is in Greek is apostolou, and it's where we get the word apostle from. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, or apostled me, I send you, or apostled you. The word means to send out or to appoint as a representative. So we are, just like Jesus was God's earthly messenger, we are Jesus' messenger. The word is an authority term. So in the days of kings and paper scrolls and wax seals, the king would write an edict or an order for the general or the governor, seal it with wax and give it to a messenger and he'd get on a horse and he'd ride. And when he got to the city gates, he'd say, open in the name of the king. That messenger had authority. They had to respond to him. When he says, in the name of the king, you have to respond to him like he's the king. He delivers the messenger to the governor or the general or whoever it is. And then all of a sudden now I'm just a servant again. As long as he's got the message, he's got authority. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I send you. Another term is representative. Apostolu means it's an appointed representative. You represent me, just like I represent God. I told you last week, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The people in your family and at your work and in school, if they've seen you, they're supposed to have seen Jesus. Supposed to. We all know there's days that we ain't Jesus. But we're supposed to be Jesus. All right? And I told you last week that it's not an exact translation, but a very close representative term in our day for apostolu is ambassador. Jesus says here, just as God sent me, I send you. I am God's ambassador from the heavenly government to earth. You are my ambassadors. And a U.S. ambassador represents the United States, to a foreign country. The office, the embassy is in the foreign country and they represent the United States interests in that country and they represent what that country needs back to the U.S. What can we do about this? This is the political situation. This is the economic situation. How can we help? What can we do? Ambassador works both directions. Jesus says, I am the ambassador from heaven. I represent God to you and I represent you to God. That's what mediation means. Intercessor is the other word. Ambassador is that. And Jesus says, I send you. I appoint you the same way. You represent my interests on earth. And when you pray and when you serve, you're bringing your family and friends, the people that you love, you're bringing them to the throne of heaven. You have a direct line back to the home government saying, hey, hey, here's this knee down here. What can we do about this? You are heaven's ambassadors. 
I went into more detail last week. You can go online and listen if you want. Another word that is not a direct translation, but it's a very close correlation, is the word deputy. The sheriff deputizes deputies. They are not the authority, but they represent the sheriff's authority. And Jesus says, I have been deputized by God. I deputize you. You are my legal, authoritative representatives. I give you my name. I give you my power. Go and represent me in the earth. All of you who are in Christ are his deputies. So you're going to get a star this morning. I suppose if you were paying attention when you came in after first service, you saw that everybody was wearing a sheriff's star. Everybody's going to get a badge. I deputize you in Jesus' name. Jesus said, we have to uh, receive the kingdom as a little child. I guarantee you the three and four and five-year-olds would be really excited about getting a sheriff's star. So I do expect you to put this on and wear it to lunch. And your waitress can say, why are you wearing a tin badge? And you can say, because I'm Jesus' deputy. (laughs) I knew it, but I got hit up by kids after first service. Can I have a sheriff's star? No, it's just for the adults. (laughs) Now, you can tell your waitress, because we have a crazy pastor who bought 200 of these on Amazon for 30 cents and gave everybody one at church. If you are a true Christian, if you have really, truly given your life to Jesus... You are deputized to represent him in your daily life, in your circle at work and at play, at school and wherever you go and whoever you relate with, you represent Jesus and you represent him with authority. So we were talking about why why do we have to pray if God already knows and specifically this morning. I'm not talking about you praying about your own stuff because we're in this series about our authority and how we minister to other people representing Jesus. So I'm talking about if you have a loved one, a family member, a coworker, a friend who truly needs Jesus. I mean a marriage disaster or a health emergency or a financial big problem or their kids are run away or in rebellion or what, and they got a big problem and they're not living for Jesus but you would like to help them. You would like to serve them. This is one of the situations that I want to address this morning, is that you are Jesus' deputies. You represent him in those situations. Why do we have to pray and act in those situations? Because we know that God knows their problem, and we believe that God loves them and wants to solve their problem. It's because he can't act just because they have a need. Somebody has to ask God to intervene in real faith. Somebody in obedient, humble, peaceful faith, not panicked, shotgun praying, hoping God does something, but somebody with authority needs to step in to this situation. And if it's not going to be that person, it's you. You are Jesus' search and rescue team. You are Jesus' first responder. We got people to take care of that stuff in the natural. I mean, we're coming in in marriage problems and kid problems and health scares and depression and suicide and drugs and abortion and all of the mess that is humanity and saying, friend, I have a God I need you to meet. God, I have a friend you need to meet. I would like to mediate this. Can I help you to meet up? God can't act on somebody's need or even desire alone. And they may come to faith on their own, but you have it and you're deputized to represent God, to bring faith and holiness into the situation, to speak the word of God into the other person's life and ask God to act. You have friend of God faith, you can have friend of God authority. Remember the story I told you last week, Abraham hears that God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And the New Testament calls Abraham a friend of God. Abraham goes on friendly terms to God and begins to intercede, saying, God, 
if there was righteous people in the city, it wouldn't be fair if you destroyed them along with the wicked. And God says, you're right. Thank you. God is not displeased that Abraham's trying to change his mind. He's pleased that Abraham is mediating. He's interceding. So you're the friend of God and you can know what God's will is. You can know that, that God does not want your friend or family member to get divorced. He doesn't want cancer to have its way. He doesn't want the baby to die. He doesn't want the financial disaster. So you can come in and say, I know what God wants here and I'm going to ask him to do it. And I'm going to agree with him for you to do it. And I'm going to declare his word into this situation and I'm going to act however I need to act to release the Holy Spirit into your life. That's what it means to serve and intercede. You become Jesus to that person in that situation. That's why he's given us authority. That's why we have access to pray and to represent Jesus. So all of that is basically review over the last five weeks. I want to introduce a new thought, a new term uh, this morning into our series on authority, spiritual authority, and that is responsibility. Authority equals responsibility. As my kids have gotten older, they have more authority over their own decisions. I let them have more freedom with their money and their time and what they want to be involved with at school and how they you know, spend their time on the weekend or whatever. And of course, they still have to ask, you know, can we do this or that? But they're way more freedom than they did when they were five or ten. And that means they are responsible for their own bank account. They're responsible for what they choose to do. At school, it means if I choose to be an FBLA, that means I can't play this sport. Or if I choose to play this sport, I have to say no to these other things. And they've got to figure it out because authority, freedom equals responsibility. You know that of the manager at work. The manager has authority, therefore he or she has responsibility. If you're the low person on the totem pole, you can come and do your job, keep your head down, earn your paycheck, and go home. But if you're the manager, you know, it's not just authority, it's responsibility. I am responsible now. And it's the teacher in the classroom, of course. You know, you're authority over the children, but you are responsible for the education and safety of those kids. Of course, we understand that with government, that the, the more authority somebody has, the more responsible they are to make the situation be good. Um, with your customers or your clients. When somebody pays you to do something, that's giving you authority. Build my house, drill my well, fix my car, whatever businesses are represented here. And if you get authority to do something in somebody's life, you have to make it right. Can't build somebody a house and the roof leaks and you say, well, sorry, it's not my fault. Well, yes, it is. You built it. You're responsible to make it right because you have authority. So absolutely our expectations are higher when someone is in charge. And authority and responsibility go together. They're not synonyms. They don't mean exactly the same thing, but they are inextricably tied together. You cannot remove authority and responsibility from each other or you get serious dysfunction because I'll bet some of you have been under somebody's authority who didn't want responsibility when it went wrong. Somebody who was in charge but did not want to be blamed for what they did or didn't do. That's really dirty. When an authority makes a bad decision, the manure hits the fan and all of a sudden, well, it's not my fault, and they blame somebody else or they run away or they duck their head. And Anybody been there, done that? Yeah, authority and responsibility absolutely are inseparably connected. And some of you may have been in a situation where you had responsibility, but you didn't have the authority to make it happen. Like you are responsible if this goes bad, but you can't keep it from going bad because you don't have any authority. Authority and responsibility are absolutely inseparable. They don't mean the same thing, but they cannot be disconnected. If you have authority, you're responsible. The sheriff is absolutely responsible for the safety of this county. Crime, yes, but you know they're teaching the kids in the DARE programs in the school and they run the search and rescue and you know, the, the, if things are, if the crime rate's bad, we're going to go blame the people in charge. It's just, it's common sense. The boss is responsible to meet payroll. The boss can't come to the employees and say, well, sorry, we didn't make enough money this quarter, so you don't get paid. You know, you're responsible to make payroll and for the safety and the success and the profit of the business. And 
A military officer is responsible for morale and for the decisions that good and bad that are made on the battlefield. Everybody makes bad decisions, but shirking responsibility is pretty dirty. So authority equals responsibility. And Jesus said, while I'm away, I give you authority. So that means we're responsible for what goes on while he's away. And we are absolutely responsible. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he also will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or stranger or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We are absolutely responsible for what happens here. We are responsible for our neighbors. We are our brother's keepers. That phrase comes from Cain after he murdered Abel. God shows up and of course he knows Abel's dead. God's never asking for information when he asks a question. He says, Cain, where is Abel? Well, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? If we have Cain's attitude, we can expect God to treat us like he treated Cain. We absolutely are our brother's keeper. We are responsible to take care of our neighbors and the people around us. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So I showed you that verse four weeks ago when we were talking, five weeks ago when we were talking about being under authority. But this morning I just want to point out that in this context it's church leaders. God says that I will have to give an account to him on how I shepherded your souls. Did I do it for your good or did I do it for my good? Did I do it with a selfish agenda or did I do it with an agenda to serve you and to educate you and minister to you? The Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel, but several prophets condemn the priests and the kings of Israel. He says, you are shepherds who are slaughtering the sheep instead of shepherding them. You're eating them and getting fat, meaning they were using them for their own prophets rather than taking care of the people of Israel. So the context is that church leaders will be judged by Jesus for how we shepherd your souls. But the, the general principle that's revealed here is that everyone in authority will answer for how you treated the people under your authority. You are responsible and we will give account for how you raised your kids, how you treated your students, your employees. Whatever people are in your sphere of authority, we will give an account to the Lord for how we used that authority and how we shaped people and served people and took care of people that he put under our charge, how we took care of our neighbors. A lot of you already know this story, but forgive me while I tell it again. When I was a teacher in Elgin, I had a student who got encephalitis, which is a brain infection, and he collapsed in the Walmart parking lot and had to be life-flighted to Dornbecker, OHSU, and he was brain swelling and he was out of his mind and he was paralyzed on one side and and the doctors said that they didn't know if he would ever recover but if he did there would be brain damage and that he would probably have six to twelve months of therapy 
to be able to even walk or ever come back to school again. Several days he was over there and we were in school and of course it was the topic of conversation at the school amongst the students and the teachers and, and I knew I had to go over to Dornbecker and pray for him. I knew I had to go and ask the Lord to heal him. And I would like to tell you that I just loved this kid so much that I selflessly decided to go take a day of my own time in life to drive to Portland and back. Or I'd love to tell you that I had this great faith for a big miracle and I went with power and fire and I lifted him up off the bed and the paralyzed was healed. But I didn't. I thought of everything I had to do on Saturday and the work that needed done and I was afraid that what if I go over there and they laugh at me and don't want me to pray for him? What? Because this family does not serve the Lord at all not religious or Christian in any way. Uh, What if I pray my best prayer and nothing happens? I didn't try to talk myself out of it. I just had all these thoughts come up and these objections and fears. I am the most naturally cowardly and selfish person in this room. I just am. All this stuff comes up, but I tell you, the only reason I went, I would love to tell you I had good motives, but the only reason I went was because I can't face Jesus if I ignore this. I can't ignore this. I believe in a healing God and I am too selfish with my Saturday to go and pray for a kid that's paralyzed. If we look the other way and ignore the homeless or the drug addict or whatever people you know that are going through what they're going through, if we look the other way and act like we don't see it, it's like a police officer that sees a rape or a murder happening and they just drive on and ignore it. They have been given authority to stop that and they don't. It would be as wicked as if there's a fire in town and Chancey and his coworkers just are too busy playing cards and eating pizza. Just let it burn. You got a coworker who's going through a terrible divorce and they're brokenhearted, but you're too scared to speak up and offer some comfort. So I drove over to Dornbecker and I was sweating. I was terrified. I had to pray for like a half an hour in my car in the parking garage before I even got out. I was scared. I went in. The mother knew me. She received me, but... There was no faith in her. It was just nonsense. They didn't even understand what I was there to do. Like, no, I'm here to pray for his healing, and I believe a miracle can happen. So eventually, he's, he, I'm talking to him, and he's out of his mind. He's hallucinating. He can move his left arm a little bit. His left leg is completely dead. Again, the doctor said he may never recover. If he does, it'll take 6 to 12 months of physical therapy. I finally got to the point where I could pray for him. I put my hands on his shoulder and his head or something and I prayed my best prayer and nothing happened. And I left pretty dejected and uh, drove home. But I did leave with a clean heart because I knew that I had done my best. The next day he was up and out of the bed and in his right mind and in a week he was home at school. I don't know What would have happened if I didn't go to pray? I'm glad I did. I don't claim credit for that. It's Jesus. It's all Jesus. But my conscience is sure glad I obeyed instead of, well, I got a movie to watch and a pizza to eat. And a lawn to mow. When you face Jesus, you will not care about your grass. And you would say, well, okay, yeah, but Mitch, you're the pastor. I wasn't a pastor. I was a school teacher. I didn't ever know I was going to be a pastor. I visited the jail more often as a school teacher than I have as a pastor. I don't mean my students. <laughs> I heard some giggling. <laughs> I don't mean that. <laughs> Jesus said, I was in prison and you didn't come and visit me. Come on. Now, I, I told you that this summer, you know, I got the stumbling, slurring, drunk guy stumbles upon me and I talk with him and pray with him and he's instantly, supernaturally sober. It's like, I'm sober, how did you do that? I'm like, well, that's Jesus. Yeah, I, all that I was was just, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he, he's there in front of me. 
at the right place at the right time. I had a student in Elgin who was in severe sciatic pain, excruciating pain, and I prayed for him and it was instantly gone. He literally ran down the hallway screaming, what did you do to me, Mr. Costa? Like, Jesus. Like I said, none of that's when I'm a pastor. It's just, I just, you just have to make yourself available and know that it's your duty. You are responsible to use the authority Jesus gave us to minister to people when they have a need. I'm totally serious. I am the most cowardly and selfish person in this room. I have to overcome the sweats all the time because I'm not an extrovert. I'm not an easy people person. I don't like talking to strangers. And, or you know, I can be just as selfish with my time and lazy as anybody else, but you just make yourself available and force yourself to care about people and watch God show up. Now, I've prayed for numerous people who were baptized in the Holy Spirit as or soon after I prayed for them. I prayed for a woman in this church a long time ago. She was in the ICU in such pain she could hardly breathe. She couldn't talk to me. On my way up there, the Lord told me, sing, great is thy faithfulness. I, the song just came up in me. So I walked into the ICU and she couldn't, she couldn't really talk to me very easily at all. She was in excruciating pain, labored breathing. And I said, the Lord told me to sing this song. I began to sing that hymn and her body completely relaxed. And when I was done singing, she said, all of my pain is gone. It's completely gone. The Lord just told me to sing the song. These things aren't hard. The hard part is killing this. The selfishness in me and the fear in me that what if this doesn't work or I'm too busy or what if they think I'm a fool? That's the hard part. The stuff that Jesus tells us to do is not hard. Go sing a song. I've seen numerous physical healings. I've had to pray for numerous people tormented by demons and and I, sometimes there's success. I had a guy come and visit me on the sly. A doctor in town, completely off the record, of course, tells him, you need to go see the pastor at New Song. You have problems I can't help. <laughs> so, so this, thanks a lot. <laughs> I don't want to pick a fight with a demon. <laughs> so this guy that I didn't know but I knew of comes and tells me, I says, I got problems. I hear voices and they tell me to do very wicked things that I don't want to do. And I haven't done, but, but I'm really bothered. I'm tormented by this. And so we talked for an hour or so and I gave him scripture and I told him how to use the name of Jesus. I asked him if he was... If Jesus was his Lord, because I told him none of this is going to work if you're, if you're in Satan's territory. And I know I was baptized when I was a kid, and I, and I told him the gospel. Yeah, I believe all that. I don't think he was actively living it out, but he certainly wasn't hard against it. Um, like, okay. I, 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 so I gave him the name of Jesus, and I told him how to take those thoughts captive. And I, I prayed for him, and I said, all right, some, this is a process. So you know, come back next week and let me know how it's going, and we'll just keep fighting this thing until it's gone and and he never showed back up and like two weeks later i gave him a call like hey how come he didn't come back he said oh oh those are gone (laughs) it totally quit like oh that was easier than i thought (laughs) me of great faith (laughs) i'm surprised when our prayer is answered (laughs) i've i've gotten to pray with numerous men in jail and lost count of hospital visits you know, run-of-the-mill stuff and ICU and NICU and the cancer ward. I've been to Boise and Portland and Walla Walla and Spokane. Some of that's good and others of it's a chore. But I'm responsible. Uh, there's a duty we have to wear this badge. God says, don't take my name in vain. That doesn't mean don't cuss. It means don't call yourself a Christian and then don't live like it. Either in hypocrisy or saying you wear the name of Christ and then doing nothing with it. Don't wear your badge in vain. I get asked to pray for numerous dying people, hospice visits and such, and that is not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not fun to go and meet total strangers who are dying and they know the only reason I'm there is because they're dying. I got asked by a lady in the church to go visit her dad in Wallawa. 
He'd been given a terminal cancer diagnosis, and I think he had three months to live. And I don't know why, but I was really nervous about this one because I didn't know the guy at all. I know that he knows the only reason I'm coming to see him is because he's dying. That's a real great conversation starter. You know, knock on the door. Hi, I'm here because you're dying. <laughs> Obviously, that's not how I said it. But, <laughs> but you know, this is, you know, it, it's not easy stuff. I knock on this guy's door and his apartment in Wallawa, and we hit it off great. We had an awesome time. I think I was there three hours. He chain-smoked the entire time. <laughs> Jesus showed up in a cloud of smoke. We had a great time. And the guy, I'd been told he was antagonistic about church and pastors and, and Christianity because he'd been hurt in the past. And he told me all about that. And he teared up and, and I talked to him about the Lord and I gave him the gospel and I asked if he was truly right with Jesus. And he said, absolutely. And I believe him. And, and he, he went into eternity with a clean heart. And there was one person I had to lead him in forgiveness for and I know that's why I was there, to clean that part out of his heart. I got another call from a guy in the church. My dad is comatose. He's dying within hours. Hasn't been responsive at all for 24 hours. I need you to come and pray for him. He hates Christians, and he especially hates pastors. Great. At least he's comatose. This guy has laid on the couch, completely unresponsive for 24 hours. He is dying any moment. They lead me in to the house. I kneel beside the couch, and I get right in his ear, and I said, whatever his name was, I said, I'm your son's pastor. I'm here to pray for your soul in Jesus' name. Will you receive that? And he squeezed my hand, and his eyes popped open, and he said, yes. And he was gone. I mean, he was back out, and he died that night. But I prayed him into eternity, I am certain, because when I said the name of Jesus, he said yes. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And he, he had not responded for over 24 hours, and he never did again. But when I said the name of Jesus, his eyes opened, and he said yes, and he squeezed my hand. And then he was back out, and I prayed for him, and I left, and he died. I've been asked to pray for resurrection, for dead bodies. I, that's a hard one. <laughs> uh, but it, it's happened. Um, I don't mean the resurrection has happened. I mean the prayer request has happened. <laughs> I've been directed to, by the Holy Spirit to pray for or prophesy to total strangers. I've fasted for the Lord and for our country and for revival and some of you. And I'm talking about you are, have a duty. We are responsible to represent Jesus. This is how it's done. And take care of the people around us who don't have faith. You can provide faith in their situation. I've had to help numerous tweaking, stoned, angry, crazy people. I've lost count of how many times I've had to clean up poop and or blood, and I don't mean kids. I, and it's, it's not all... Miracles and healing and eternity, it's sometimes it's just stop and help somebody on the side of the road. You know, I don't know how many times I've put on a spare tire for somebody or yes, just yesterday I pulled a guy out of a snow. Not really a drift, but he was stuck in the snow and I pulled him out. Last year I got to help zip tie an ignition coil on a spark plug. Somebody down at Weatherby had blown their spark plug. It came unthreaded and blew up into their hood. But the spark plug was still good and the ignition coil was still good. It was just busted up. And both of those people were so twitchy, I'm sure they were on meth. But I got my zip ties out and I ran across the freeway a whole bunch of times right there in that canyon where we were really close to traffic. I got their spark plug in and we got their ignition coil zipped on and they went off down the road and all I got to do I mean, I didn't preach at them. I didn't present the gospel right there on the roadside. I, I just blessed them in Jesus' name, and I took care of what their need was. And I prayed they would not hurt anybody when they drove home because they were really twitchy. Uh, you know, I, in October, I picked up a hitchhiker, and the dumping rain 
between Elgin and Legrand, and I took him to McDonald's because he hadn't eaten in about a day, and we just sat in McDonald's for an hour and a half, and I gave him Jesus. He was really excited. Oh, yeah, I'm getting right with God. I haven't taken meth in nine days. Praise God. Yeah. And we just had an Egg McMuffin, and these things are not hard. The hard part is killing your own selfishness. But buying somebody an Egg McMuffin isn't hard. You don't have to know every Bible verse. You just just love them. Just take care of what you know to take care of and say what you, need, what you know to say. Be a shoulder to cry on. Be somebody to listen. Be somebody to provide hope in a hopeless situation. Somebody to be a friend to somebody who's lonely. Whatever it is. We are responsible to God for the people around us because he's given us authority. If he'd left us weak and helpless, then we wouldn't be responsible. But we are not powerless. You're a deputy of Jesus. You're supposed to represent Jesus in Union County. And there's a lot of people around that need hope or healing or salvation or pulled out of a snowdrift. Whatever the case is, you're, you truly are Jesus' search and rescue team. And I don't mean up in the mountains. We've got people that do that. I mean in marriage disasters and family troubles and health emergencies and people who are facing terribly heartbreaking troubles search and find and act because God can't just step in and fix their problem he's got to have somebody ask and even if they are asking in desperation or panic or blame he's got to have somebody with real faith who is willing to actually obey and take care of this person to release the Holy Spirit into their situation so that he can move yeah? You're Jesus' first responders. Be the helpful ones who will step in and serve and pray when there's a need. Since we have His Word and His Spirit, we are accountable to live in obedient faith, compassion, and care for our neighbor. We are not, well, here's what we're not doing we're not babysitting the world. Not responsible like a babysitter. We're not responsible to fix or control people who refuse to obey God. If you have tried to love somebody and serve them and get them to see the truth and they just absolutely refuse to do it right, I'm going to do it my own way, there is a point where you're done. Because there is a point where God's done. They've had their chance. So we're not babysitting. The church wastes so much time and money taking care of people who are just sucking off of our resources for selfish reasons. We're not here to provide worldly welfare. We're here to provide kingdom resources, which is salvation and freedom from sin and joy and peace and hope and love and miracles and forgiveness and all of that. Of course, yes, we provide food and clothing and shelter and all, but not, the, not at, to the point of uh, allowing people to sin. And the other thing I want to say is we're not more responsible than Jesus. He is the Savior of the world, not us. Not you individually, not even our church. Jesus is the Savior. It is our job and our goal is not to change the world. And it isn't to solve all the world's problems. That's not what we're here to do. Our goal can't be to make sure that no one around us is suffering. Because that isn't God's goal. We can't stop what God isn't stopping. So if you make it your goal to make sure everybody around you is comfortable and happy. And that nobody has any problems. You are going to wear yourself out. We're not responsible to babysit people who refuse to obey, and we're not responsible to make sure that nobody has any problems. That's not what we're here to do. We are responsible to pray. We're responsible to care. We're responsible to make our hearts be broken for the suffering around us, to serve and to intercede, which means pray, but it also means speak up, to act, to say, God, here's my friend. Friend, here's my God. Let's, let's have you guys meet and see what God can do. It's responsible to have faith, to have hope, to speak the truth, to shine your light, to obey God, to be spiritual instead of worldly, and to be holy. That's our responsibility. That's our duty. Make ourselves available to care for the people around us. We are responsible because he's given us authority.
Don't carry his name in vain. Don't wear that badge in vain. You can do it. It's not just for the pastors. Okay. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for entrusting us with the authority of your name, with the power of your blood. Thank you for giving us the keys to the kingdom, Lord. Thank you that you trust us to be responsible. Lord, forgive us for being lazy or selfish or fearful in that responsibility. Lord, we accept your responsibility, your duty to love our neighbor, to take care of the people around us, to not look away from the suffering or the need and act like it isn't there. But you've given us the responsibility, the duty, the task of being your deputies, your ambassadors, your first responders, your search and rescue team. Lord, thank you for the honor of getting to love our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our classmates in your name. Lord, we accept that responsibility. We truly do want to be your representatives. We want to live in your love and your power and your forgiveness, your compassion for those around us. Forgive us for being selfish or lazy about that. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit fire would light in every heart, that we would burn with your holy fire, that we would feel the fire of your love in our hearts that moves us in boldness to go and serve and to speak up and to care, to make ourselves available when we're not available. I bless every person here in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.